Hi everyone, data stories number 26 after a long break, summer break. Hi Moritz. Hey Enrico. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Uh, good, mellow, relaxed. How do you feel? Good. I, I had a great summer in fact. It was, was quite sunny here and I took some time off mm-hmm. <laughs> for once. <laughs> time off? Yeah, time actually, off. actually time off. Yeah. Sounds weird. And now I'm... Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not exactly relaxed, but I feel like mm-hmm. in a good mood and productive and so on. So that's cool. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I'm doing fun projects right now. So it's just a, a small selection of what I'm doing is a B infographic uh, analysis wow. software for pro soccer players, like a training device for pro soccer players. And I do the analysis software. Wow. And a new type of election map for the German, you know, we have the big election. The oh, you're going to have the big elections. When is when is that? In two weeks. In two and weeks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll do a, like a new type of map for the results. So you have the chance to influence the elections, actually. <laughs> no, <I'm joking. laughs> In fact, that's true because we published the results from last time, like a week before in this format. And wow. so who knows? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Wow, let's talk about the impact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Yeah, well, so it's, yeah, it's a nice mixture. What, what are you up to? Oh, I had a nice summer in New York, stayed here, basically walked the kids around. That was fun. I discovered that there are nice um, beaches around New York, which I didn't expect. Cool. Uh, yeah. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. And uh, I came back to work kind of like one week ago and it was super crazy, but I'm excited. I'm really excited. My new course started. It's a visual analytics course and uh, it looks like I have some nice uh, students. They are excited too. And uh, lots of new projects going on. I have also a new, uh, two new PhD students. So these are actually my, my first two students here. So I'm super, oh, super excited. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's great time, actually. Great time. Great, yep. great you're, time. You're getting into the groove. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Lots of work, but, but it's good. It's really cool. good. I like it. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, so let's start. Of course, we have another great guest today. Uh, we have Petra Eisenberg, and we are going to talk about uh, visualization beyond the desktop interface. Uh, Petra is a researcher and an old friend of mine, and uh, she's been working in the area, in the intersection between visualization, human-computer interaction, uh, computer-supported collaborative work. It's a very nice mix of skills. And welcome, Petra. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm good. Also had a good summer. <laughs> really? <laughs> Not too much taking care of kids too? No, the, the grandparents were there for, oh, for grandparents. Oh, the I don't have that yeah, here. That's I'm the best. jealous. That's <laughs> the best. That's the best. So Petra, we normally let our guests introduce themselves a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Give a little bio sketch and tell us what you do and what are your research interests? or even mention your project, stuff like that? Uh, Sure, yeah. So I uh, started doing uh, information visualization, and that, I would say, is my main area. 
when I was studying in uh, Magdeburg in Germany, um, a subject called computational visualistics, which is a little bit like computer science with a focus on images. So that was a lot of fun. Afterwards, I moved to the University of Calgary to do my PhD with Sheila Carpendale. And that's uh, where I actually started to work on this intersection, as you just introduced, of uh, CCW, so uh, computer-supported cooperative work, and uh, InfoVis. And afterwards, I did a postdoc at INRIA in France in the AVIS team. And that's where I now have a permanent research position. So this is my my sort of where I came from and where I'm now. And uh, my main research interests are still basically fit exactly the, the topic of this, this podcast. So I, I'm really interested in how we can combine information visualization with novel contexts and, and or novel devices and in novel settings like uh, collaborative settings. Great. Fantastic. Yeah, by the way, I, I suggest our listeners to give a look to your webpage because there are lots of interesting uh, examples and images. I, I guess you also have some videos, right? Yeah, yeah, there are a few. Yeah, yeah. Um, we will put the, the URL on the website, of course. Um, so I think that's really interesting because, I mean, by looking at what you do, um, it's really interesting because... I start asking myself, what can we do with visualization once we move beyond the desktop interface? It looks like there are lots of potential opportunities and, of course, a lot of challenges, right? So can, can you give us a little bit of a broad overview of what happens when you move from the, from the desktop to some other kind of devices? Also, what kind of devices you can move to? I guess you've been working with surfaces, uh, what else, display walls, stuff like that, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so there, there are actually several, or I would say two main reasons why you may want to move away from the desktop setting. And, and here I'm saying, I'm thinking of the desktop setting as something that the visualization community has considered uh, in most of the past work. And it's sort of a work setting where you imagine there's some sort of analyst who has a lot of data and for him or her, you're creating a visualization to help their work task, whatever it may be. It could be simple charts or it could be something very complex in the area of biology or so. Um, now, if you start thinking about uh, surfaces, then basically two new uh, opportunities open up. One is that you can support visualization in new environments. So you can actually think about using visualizations in uh, meeting rooms, uh, in museums, in an emergency response settings where there's a really hectic environment, potentially in hallways as ambient displays or um, also in shared work settings where several people come together. So that's the one new thing you can consider. And the other one is that you can actually reach new audiences that you may not have been able to reach before. And this is this is where collaboration becomes really important because if you think about surfaces that are large, so so last time you had a, uh, you talked to Dominicus about mobile devices uh, that has some some similar uh, new benefits. It's also part of of the desktop. But now, if you talk about larger surfaces such as tabletops and malls, you can support people standing around the same display and looking at data together and exploring it together and discussing it and making decisions. 
Um, and of course, you can support many non-work contexts as well. So audiences in a museum, for example, that may just want to learn something. Sure, sure. Well, that that sounds great. So basically, you have a lot, a whole set of new opportunities because you can you can let visualization happen in completely new environments, right? And at the same time, you have people interacting in completely different new, uh, in completely new ways, right? Mm, that, that, yeah, that, so that, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, please go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so this is basically the one uh, type of benefit where we have new usage context, either to the location or the types of people you can support. But then, of course, if you think about a surface as coupled with the input technology, for example, touch, as you discussed last time, but um, there are many, many other ways of interacting with a surface. Surfaces can have more pixels, so you can show more data. Uh, you may be able to sh show data in a completely different way if you think, for example, of a bendable surface or you know, something like e-paper and things like that. Hmm. So uh, there may be very different types of exploration that interactive exploration that you could support with a surface that is not the standard desktop screen with a mouse and a keyboard in front of it. Okay. So what are, so one thing I'm curious about, I guess there are some type of visualizations that happen in standard environments that make sense to move to this new kind of environments and other type of visualizations that just don't make sense to move there, right? I mean, just as a mm -hmm. wild guess. And probably the other way around too, I mean, I guess there are visualizations that can happen in this kind of environments and just cannot happen with a standard desktop interface, right? Uh, yes, sure. So one of the problems here is that if you're now going to ask me, like, which visualization should I never put, for example, on a tabletop display, like yeah. a horizontal surface, yeah. this is very difficult to answer because it depends depends on the environment and depends on the type of task and people you want to support. For example, uh, if you think about something standard like like Tableau, for example, and I, I just take the desktop version of Tableau and put it on a tabletop and put five people around it, most likely it will not be the most effective way for these five people to explore data together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or at least not in a synchronous way. If you have one person driving the interface then, uh, and the others are just watching, it could still be better than a desktop display, but uh, not for synchronous sort of fluid Interact, uh, interaction and exploration in, in parallel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of if you just think about as, uh, a single visualization, um, then it's it's a bit difficult to say if you should, for example, never put a line chart on a tabletop display or something, you know, something like that, uh, because it really depends on who your audience is is going to be. Some. If, if you put something in a museum, you most likely would not put a very complex and complicated visualization for people who will just walk, try and walk up and use it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but if you put it on another type of surface that, like in a meeting room where people, like say a meeting room where biologists meet all the time to discuss the results from their experiments, then uh, you may be able to put something more complex and very domain-specific there that you couldn't put in a museum, for example. 
Sure, sure. So I guess that basically, roughly speaking, we, we can still have some kind of visualizations that are more um, some kind of communication kind of visualizations where you expect mm -hmm. people to walk by, give a look, maybe have a little bit of interaction and, and leave. And, yeah. and other type of visualizations that are more targeted towards data analysis, right? And yes, I think exactly. that's a very interesting angle because as soon as you think about what people can do, what kind of data analysis people can do in front of these surfaces or, or, or walls, now you have this collaborative uh, kind of capabilities that was very limited on the on the desktop, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, do do you have any direct experience of observing people doing some data analysis in a collaborative fashion with this kind of devices? Uh, yeah, so we actually did a study. Um, this is while I was working at at Microsoft for an internship. We did a study on um, the Microsoft Surface, which uh, Surface One, which was a I would say like a large desktop display just as a horizontal surface. So it was a 30-inch um, 1024 by uh, 768 kind of display. So not particularly big and not particularly high resolution, but you could sit around it with, uh, I would say, two, one to four people. So what we did there is we actually gave people a fairly complex task. So they had to search 300 documents for a hidden story. So this was part of the, the VAST contest. I think you interviewed yeah, somebody yeah, sure. about the VAST yeah. contest in the past. So within these 300 docu docu text documents, there were mostly newspaper articles. There was a story hidden about... Um, there were, so be, people started with a document talking about a car accident and somebody was yelling something very strange, like, oh, the flowers. and So, so people had to go from this accident to actually finding out um, that there were some illegal things going on in this town and, mm -hmm. and this guy was poisoned and why he was poisoned and so on. Um, and this task took people, people around one, one to two hours to complete. So, so it was fairly complex uh, and not so easy to answer. But what was very interesting was that this, so we built a dedicated system for exploring this uh, this document collection for people and we studied fairly regular um, people who had like they weren't researchers or computer scientists just people um, basically from from any kind of discipline or even seniors or so coming in and they were very very comfortable using the system even though it was for document exploration and search and, and fairly complex just um, the familiarity of sitting around a table and being able to look at things together and discussing it uh, was a great, great en entry point. I I my hunch is that if we had compared it to a desktop setting, that the way people behaved in first entering or looking at this tool would have been quite different. Sure, sure. I mean, that that's my, my hunch too. And I think, so this reminded me there is a I don't know if you remember this kind of study a few years back, I think 2000-something. There was a study, I think, conducted on, on standard interfaces from Alfred Kops, I guess, that mm -hmm. basically says that uh, two pairs of eyes actually discover more stuff that, than one, one pair of eyes. So if you mm -hmm. put more people 
uh, on on uh, on a data analysis task, the the sum of what they find is definitely more than what a single person would find. Roughly speaking, I think that was the the outcome of the study. And now I think as you move from from a desktop interface to something that is more where people can can actually collaboratively work together, this may be even more powerful, right? Because you have not only you have that you have more more eyes, you also have the interaction between these people, right? Yeah, exactly. So we saw, we saw people discussing the hypothesis, challenging each other, each other's hypothesis, um, coming up uh, and just finding different things. Like you said, they saw more. They could split the work in whichever way they wanted. Um, and this was this was really like a benefit to the group work. And interestingly, actually, we. We also did an analysis of how successful people were in completing the task and how correct the answers were. Mm -hmm. And those people who worked very, very closely together, uh, so who paid attention to what the other person had read and, and discussed closely what they had found, they were the most successful. Mm -hmm. Because even if you use a tabletop display and you are in the same place, doesn't necessarily mean that you always know what the other person is doing, especially when you're doing very... Um, like reading tasks where you concentrated on something small, you can't just at a glance see what the other person is actually looking at. Sure. So much of the effect comes probably just from the fact that people actually have a dialogue about what they are seeing and this helps you like maybe think yeah. in, a, in a more structured way or, or just discover new stuff. Yeah, exactly. There are some interface elements that you can build in to help people become aware of what the other person has done. Mm -hmm. um, but it would we need a bit more research to find out exactly if, um, like how to design that such that groups, for example, don't communicate naturally with each other, that they're actually forced to or uh, inc strongly encouraged <laughs> mm -hmm. to uh, share more. Mm -hmm. Like in this document, for example, in this document example, you could show... Uh, okay, the other person has read this or uh, you have already read this and the other person has looked at something similar and you can build interface elements that will show this. But yeah. yeah, but it's interesting because we are really not used to operating computers together. So, And it's always a strange moment when you sit at your machine and somebody else takes over the mouse. It's always like, uh, <laughs> what's he doing there? Yeah. And so, yeah, we're really not used to, to doing stuff on a computer like really, uh, yeah. In a shared workspace. In a shared space, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, this level of intimacy that you normally have in front of your computer, this is totally lost. Even right. if you are, even if you are the single person. So now I'm thinking about the museum scenario. Even if you are the only person who is interacting with the interface, you still have the feeling that it's not very intimate anymore, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, Moritz. I think you've been working on on some similar kind of projects where you have some kind of public display somewhere is that correct yeah occasionally i mean the, yeah. the biggest was probably that table we did for the venice biennale in 2008 uh -huh. and it was not a multi-touch but a like an object-based thing where you could move cards on the table uh -huh. but that was quite educational and we we sort of started it without much experience in the area and and a few things well one thing we learned along the way for instance was that if you have a table 
you have no up and down, but you have more like center and outside, and and this is what you work with. So you have to switch your mindset to a bit more a polar uh, coordinate system, maybe. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, people can approach the table from any side, right? And yeah, so sure. and yeah. when you have a vertical surface, it's always clear where there's left, right, up, and down, right? And so that 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 was kind of interesting, and also this this whole situation, like who's in control of the visualization or are people competing in some form, stuff like that. Uh, that's that's something you never think about. Uh. There's actually some some interesting re past research in uh, in the area of CCW that that comes from um, Sheila Carpenter, so my previous lab, um, where they looked at um, this kind of personal spaces that you form on a tabletop display, mm -hmm. and what they found, or they call this theory of territoriality, where um, it's clear that people sort of form these intrinsic spaces around them when right. they're standing around the tabletop. So you have a personal space that's quite close to where you're standing. And then there are uh, shared spaces. For example, if uh, the typical example in early tabletop work was this photo collection. So you're looking at photos together or something. And then if you want to look at something just by yourself, you would move those photos closer to you. If you want to make them available to the whole group, you would move them more in a central location. Mm -hmm. And um, then there were some storage spaces that people also often created to make piles of, of stuff that, that had a, yeah. You need you to store your something. stuff somewhere, right? I mean. Yeah, exactly. You, you need to, like location is a strong indicator of, yeah. like, I need to do something with this. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So, yeah. But, mm -hmm. So now I'm thinking that there might be also some kind of public displays that are, that I'm thinking about I don't know public environments where there is a display uh, somewhere where, that people cannot really interact with, but past buyers can just look, get some information, and leave. Right? I'm thinking about urban environments or stuff like that. That that's also an option, right? Yeah, and actually, you can also you you don't need to necessarily think about interaction always be uh, as being something active. Yeah. You can you can passively interact by walking closer, and you mm -hmm. could build a, an inter like a visualization that reacts just on the proximity of people to the display or uh, something they do, like motion or speech or something like that. Yeah. Are there any or recommendations like for designing these? Because I, I I hear more and more about like big display screens somewhere for ambient awareness or let's say big walls at an airport things like that. Yeah. Um, are, are there any tips you can give like from research how how to work with this this totally different situation like what to avoid or what what to what to encourage things like that. So I've actually worked on big wall displays, but more with a. The thought of using it in a in a more really data analysis centered mm -hmm. kind of way, because you can imagine like having a big wall display that you actually need to analyze data on, whereas what you're describing something in the airport or something you're just passing by would you would have completely different requirements. Exactly. So yeah. I I can tell you a little bit about the recent stuff we did on wall displays, but for work purposes. One of the problems we were having is we have this wall here at Inria that is five meet, approximately five meters by two meters, wow. like five meters long, two mm -hmm. meters high. So it's much higher than at least I can reach. 
uh, and it's quite long, so you have to walk walk along it to to see everything. And our question was, okay, if we were to design a visualization for this wall that people uh, actually, where people actually need to go up and read and analyze the data that we're showing, where should we place this data, and where should we place things like like the legends or interaction widgets and things like this? So. In order to get some recommendations for, for this, we went quite low level. So we did a, a perceptual experiment that just looked at how accurately can people actually read information on a wall, de depending on where they're standing. So we, we said, okay, let's take a very extreme case. You're standing on the very left of this wall and you're looking at something and you, for some reason, have to read something that's quite far away, like let's say five meters away or, or above your head. So what we had people do is we showed them, for example, a circle right in front of their eyes and at the far end of the wall. And then we had them match the size of the circle. So this is something that studies how well people are able to estimate the size of objects that are far away mm -hmm. and that are at a very oblique angle, uh, viewing angle. And what we so found was a little Petra, bit... Sorry, sorry so, if I interrupt yeah? you, just, just to make sure. So this basically means that now, since since people have a, such a larger extent, I mean, it's, it's much more freedom. You can move close and far far away. So mm -hmm. now you might actually have new kind of distortions in the visualization. Is that correct? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so, yes, exactly. So... Because now you can have all sorts of different viewing angles on the data that on a desktop display, we're currently assuming people looking right at the data or right. yeah. their head is moved just a little bit. But mm. if you're thinking about a wall that's five meters long and you're showing a map on it, for example, or yeah, let's say a map and, and circles show, for example, the number of people in that city on the map, you could, you could think about a just a simple visualization such as this. And you may want to compare the size of this one city to another city. So in this case, you would have to compare the size of the circles. How well would you be able to do it if the other city is five meters away from you? That's the, kind of the scenario. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. Sure. sure. Yeah. So, so what we found is that people actually made quite a few errors and mostly when they had to judge uh, angles. So, um, for example, in the extreme case, when uh, you're looking at an angle, imagine a pie chart, so you have to judge the size of like, the angle that one pie makes to the angle of another pie that's five meters away. People actually thought that, for example, an angle of, say, 100 degrees was 1.5 times the size it actually was. Oh, wow. So they made, wow. <laughs> yeah. They made quite a bit of That's an bad. error. And, yeah. And, um, and they were not we aware made, of that error, or were they aware, or were they, like, expressing doubt about their own judgment? Um, so now... Well, we asked them to be as accurate as possible, so mm -hmm. I, I think they tried, they tried to be quite accurate. But So the experiment is a bit longer and more complicated. Okay. Than, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to explain in detail, but we had people also, we gave later gave people the opportunity to walk, mm -hmm. to walk closer and double check if they wanted to. And uh, some, we found that things improved when people could walk, but only if they walked in a certain way. If they walked actually to the middle center in front of the screen, 
they became better, but people, people are lazy, right? So lots of people just stepped half, like one step back yeah. and leaned, you know, as if you're playing basketball and trying to get around someone <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then looked, but this didn't help at all. Ah, okay. So yeah, it, it the large viewing angles may be a problem. And what we also found is you may be familiar with this ranking of visual variables that, um, Cleveland yeah. and McGill came up with where they say, okay, we're really good at judging lengths. So comparing lengths, uh, something we can do almost accurately. And we found something similar for the wall displays. We can judge lengths quite well. Uh, but then in Cleveland's work, the next best thing would be judging angles and then areas. So mm -hmm. the circle example would be the areas. Uh, and we found actually, uh, yeah, we actually found that the, um, area judgments uh, on the wall were better than the angles. So there's something reversed. So in, thing, in, in terms of guidelines and recommendations exactly for how to design visualizations, we there's still lots of research that needs to be done. Because yes. now we tested something at a very low level, but of course we want to, we don't want to just show circles and lines and angles. We want to assemble them into more complex visualizations right. yeah, and, yeah. and then study. Yeah. But that's a good piece of information already that you cannot trust your usual <laughs> like rules of thumb necessarily. Yeah. And probably yeah. also yeah. that you need to design also the, the space in front of your wall. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. it's no longer only designing the, the visualization itself It's also trying to, to put, maybe put some constraints in the space you, you have in front of the wall. Right. If I understand yeah. correctly, I mean, you might want to constrain how people or giving instructions on how people should move in front of a wall. I don't know. Yeah, this is one thing. And, and for example, if you think about uh, tabletops, yeah, of course, you have this uh, weird viewing angle from all sides of the table. You're looking at uh, a skewed angle. So you have to consider if, if this is potentially a problem for whatever visualization you're building. Mm -hmm. And if so, then you could um, move it sort of in a tilted way. I think Moritz worked on a, a project with the Max Planck Institute where you guys used a tilted table. I don't, I'm not sure yeah. if this was a desi design decision you made or who made it, but this is something you can consider. Yeah, that was from the, the, the company designing the exhibition, and they have developed that as a product. And it's sort of a slightly tilted, maybe 20 degrees or so, Uh, vertical display and it's nice because you can stand in front of it and have a comfortable uh, body posture with your hands you know and uh, and looking a bit down and you can sort of rest your hands a bit on it and you don't have that awkward um, interaction with like a totally vertical surface which is mm. a bit um, a bit more demanding like bodily yeah <laughs> that's also something right fatigue like you said people are lazy and if you run around at a wall and have to move your arms all the time it is quite it can make you tired quite quickly right <laughs> that's, that's yeah another, yeah this is something people factor. are yeah. yeah yeah this is this is something i'm really i'm really curious about because i've been so my personal experience with this kind of surfaces is that so when I was in Constance, we had this huge power wall. And here, when I moved here at NYU Poly, we also have a wall. It's a little smaller. And um, I, am, I am intimidated by this stuff because, I mean, my reaction is the first time you see a visualization on this kind of device, of course, 
your reaction is, wow, it looks beautiful and so many details. But as soon as you try to interact with this stuff, it's a nightmare. I mean, there's, <laughs> you just don't know how, you don't even know how to start, right? And I remember, for instance, in, in Constance, we used to interact with, with just standard mouse and keyboard. It's, it's unbelievably hard, right? And um, so, Pedro, can you tell us something more about how you interact with this kind of new devices? Because it, it looks like a big, big challenge to me. And of course, I mean, even if you have new ways of interacting with a wall, like, for instance, gesture interfaces or stuff like that, then you you still have new challenges like fatigue. That is it's the thing that Maurice just mentioned, but probably a lot of other problems, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's actually a lot of research, in particular in, in HDI, that you would, for example, see at the Kai conference, that looks exactly at what what would be the best ways and less least fatiguing ways to interact with the wall. Um, there are wands, there are gloves. You can, lots of people now are looking at body tracking, like stuff mm. at the Kinect and mid-air gestures and. Um, there's some work that takes, uh, as I mentioned before, takes into account where you're standing. So if you're moving closer to the wall, you, you get more detailed information. If you're moving back, uh, you will be shown something else uh, or the data moves with you as you move along the wall. It, it always depends on context if this kind of interaction would make sense or not. But um, yeah, so there's there's lots of things going on, but in particular, like specifically for visualization purpose, there's actually very little research on, on interaction and um, well, on, on non-mouse interaction, like what even just something as touch displays, there's, well, you talked with Dominicus last time, but there's not that much research on how to interact most effectively with a visualization using touch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And my feeling um, is that touch is really, I mean, if I have to guess what kind of, if I have to say what the kind of interaction I'd like to have, I think this medium-sized displays with with touch, it looks like the most natural thing I would do. I mean, I never tried, but it looks the most natural thing I would do. I mean, it still allows to have some higher resolution. It still allows you to collaborate with one, maybe another two people. And you have natural interaction in front of it. I don't know. What's your opinion on that? I mean, anything yeah, anything so larger than that, it looks really intimidating to me. As long as 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 soon as you try to interact with it. Yeah. So so we're actually going to build a very large um, touch-enabled wall here in the future, and um, the University of Groningen, for example, also has one up. But I'm not sure quite what the experiences are, and I'm I'm very curious to start some research on on touch interaction for visualizations on a very large wall. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that needs to be considered when you're just thinking about touch is that it's not usually touch alone that, that you think about. When you're actually implementing a touch-based uh, environment, you usually also do away with all the WIMP-type interfaces. So you're, you're changing... But if, if you think about some something like Excel, for, for example, that how you create a chart and how you would interact with a chart, it's very still very menus, icons, pointer-based, mm -hmm. right? On a tabletop or on a tablet, usually you would just stop designing a, a visualization or with this kind of interface completely, mm -hmm. and you're starting to map uh, 
interactions to other other things. So you're not it's not only just adding t- about adding touch, it's also just making the whole environment different. So it, it's difficult and there definitely needs to be more work done. Mm-hmm. And that makes it hard, of course, from a research point of view to isolate individual factors if everything has changed, basically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, yeah it's, and it's actually also a, a, a big problem for validation. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about comparing a mouse-based interface to a touch-based interface, and you're, or let's say you're building a, um, like a touch-enabled scatter plot, something very simple and a mouse-based Scatter plot. The question is, how can you really, in an evaluation, isolate the value that the touch brings mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. beyond just measuring speed and accuracy in some task? Right. Yeah. Like, what's the value that you get by actually touching data and moving your arms and knowing where in space something is located? It's, it's quite difficult. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Um. Uh, I wanted to ask you something. I forgot it. Sorry. It was in the back so of my I mind. Can, I can actually yeah. tell you. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I can tell you one more thing that's, that's a little bit related to um, interaction in that you can also think about designing uh, visualizations such that uh, you can sort of passively interact. And one example is is a project we're going to present. I'm going to present with Pierre, who you interviewed with Yvonne in the past on the physical visualization. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we we did a project where we actually combining two encodings of data and overlaying them mm-hmm. such that when you're close, you see one thing and when you're far away, you see another thing. So you mm-hmm. can walk wow. close to the wall, okay. yeah. read detailed data, walk far away and read either completely different or related or just mm-hmm. meta information from afar. Yeah. And so this is a this is a way where the encoding is done in a way that without actually having to have a dedicated input device, you can interact by walking close and far, and you still get some um, some different content. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. That sounds yeah. like a very very interesting way of interacting and a very natural one, obviously, because this is what you will do. Like when you want to learn a detail about something, you will get closer. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So now I recall what I wanted to ask you. So moving away from, from the, let's say, the research world, is are you aware of any uh, real-world settings or companies that are already using this kind of technologies for... Uh, doing some collaborative work in front of a display. So I remember, for instance, a professor mentioning to me he's been, um, he had a contact with a big pharma company and they are definitely exploring the the idea of doing some visualization on large walls to understand, to collaboratively discuss uh, things like um, molecules for for engineering new drugs or stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So can you give us, do you have other examples or things you know or you have experienced yourself that are more in the, on the, on the market, right? Mm. Yeah. So I think there are two main places. One is museums. Uh As uh, Moritz probably has some experience, for example, Art and Com, the uh, 
is one of the companies that's making lots and lots of uh, large display kind of visualizations for museums and exhibits and, and so on. And they're doing really cool stuff. It's worth looking at. And uh, the other one, I would say probably command and control centers. So uh, there have even been some research papers describing how people collaborated around a mission, NASA mission planning tool. Um, and recently I attended a workshop on um, in the European Crisis Center in Italy. So there were a bunch of companies that came that design like mission type, I would say, dashboard systems for large displays. Um, so in in these cases, they're certainly used by real world settings. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. this reminds. Th that's also I'd like to mention the Panic uh, Status Board, which is really nice. Panic is quite a nice software company, and they built their own sort of dashboard. They would hang into their own office. It's something I think it's it's not done enough. So whenever you have people working together, you could could always have like a big display with information relevant to them. And so they built first the status board, and then an iPad app. So you can sort of click together your own little sure. dashboard with information relevant <laughs> to you. Yeah, and you cool. can hug it up to a big screen and then you have your own real-time ambient awareness thing. It's it's kind of nice. And I hope we'll see much more of this this type of thing. Sure. And this actually reminds me that these kind of applications are basically what is called situation awareness kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's a yeah. totally new kind of task for visualization, right? So we are used to talk about visualizations in terms of either communicating some story or message or doing some deep data analysis. But yep. here you have a completely new kind of task, right? So you mm -hmm. have people in a room who have probably a lot of different displays and they want to make sure that if something happens, they would notice and they would basically figure out as fast as they can what's, what's going on there, right? And that's exactly. a totally new angle and, and it looks really fascinating to me. Um, so one thing, another thing I wanted to ask you, Petra, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about our listeners right now. Maybe some of them think, oh, cool. I will, I will do something like that. I would love to do something like that. How, how can a person start doing that? It looks really intimidating to me, both from the technical point of view, from the, even from the cost, right? So what, what can a person afford? And, and knowledge, how can you get a knowledge, the knowledge you need to set up all these things? So it looks a little bit intimidating. So how do I start if I want to do something like that? Yeah, yeah. so there are a couple of recommendations I, I can give, I guess, from my past project. So one of the first things, let, let's say you're starting from nothing. You, you, don't have, you don't know what visualization you want. You don't know where you want to put it or you don't know what, who you want to support. So in that case... Um, Definitely find the find the right collaborators first. That can help you with choosing the right technology and uh, helping you with whatever social setting you want to support. But generally, I I recommend the following process. So first, you need to figure out uh, what scenario and environment you want to support. Like, do you want to put something in a museum? Do you want to put something in a hallway where people will just walk by and give a glance to your visualization and then continue walking or do you want to support something where people will actually spend an hour or two in front to analyze data so this is something you need to know first because it influences what types of displays you most likely should be choosing what kind of interaction techniques you may want to support what kind of resolution of technology you may want and so on 
So let's say, should we pick an example? Let's say you want to support a uh, something in a, that people will just, like an ambient display. People will walk past and they want to see the, uh, the bus schedule or something, something very simple. Mm-hmm. In this case, you need to decide, okay, where, where do you want to put it? In, in outside or inside, like in a hallway, in a building where it can be destroyed or not. And, and this influences what technology you want. Should people interact with it or just look at it? Sure. Sure. So once you know all of this, then, uh, you know, f- figure out, do you want, for example, a really large display? Is Are you fine with just a large TV, for example, uh, or a large LCD or a couple of small displays? What do you want? Is it really important that you have very, very high resolution? Like, for example, if you're trying to support someone working in front of a display for hours at a time, I probably go for higher resolution. If it's just for walking by at a glance, you can probably get away with TV resolution. Depends. Mm-hmm. Something to think about. Um, yeah, and then you need to consider what type of inter- interaction your your surface should support. Do you, if you need none, then um, well, that's fairly simple. Then you can just pick a TV or an LCD or whatever you want. You don't have to bother. If you want to support touch, then there's a bunch of displays you can buy that already have it included, or you can buy an overlay that you can just hang over your display, like over your TV board or your LCD or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want other types of interaction, then you have to worry about, for example, let's say you want like mid-air gestures, then you may want to consider buying a Kinect and, and where can you put it? Can you put it somewhere so people don't steal it and, and things like that. So once you have all of this figured out, like where what where you put your technology, what it supports, what it looks like, and where it will be located, then you should start thinking about your visualizations, like what what data makes most sense to show to people that, for example, are just passing by um, or people that their domain, and for this you may you may have to follow your typical design like cycle mm-hmm. of doing some pre studies or whatever needs to be done. Uh, yeah. So then, once you have figured out what representation you want there and you want interaction, then you really have to consider how would the interaction make most sense with this representation. So if it's touch-based, you have to consider, do you need any menus that people have to click, for example, to set a filter, or can you just get away with um, some simple buttons? Can you do any gestures that people would have to learn, or can you not afford to teach people anything? They just have to be able to use the interface right, as soon as they step in front of it for the first time. So yeah, it is a little bit daunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, you learn from every project that you do, and and you, the more experience you get with different types of displays and hardware and software environments and so on, the the easier it becomes, in my opinion. So, and I guess there might be some challenges. This is something we discussed with Dominicos as well. 
some challenges in terms of what kind of libraries you are forced to work with, right? So how does it look like? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, if you are, I guess you would have to use um, proprietary libraries or stuff like that. Yeah, so it depends a little bit on, uh, similar to what um, Dominique was said, it really depends on if you need a lot of, um, like if you, how much data you have and how much power you basically need. You can do a lot of stuff in a, in a web browser. So uh, like touch, is, touch, for example, is supported by, by lots of environments and you can build D3 applications if you want that are touch enabled. Um, if you're building a sophisticated, I don't know, brain network visualization, maybe the browser not the best and then, you can like there's some projects that, for example, connect things like the VTK library. If if you know you know that one, it's a fairly big one, especially in cybiz scientific visualization mm-hmm. with touch. Um, but for example, for the the wall display that we're working here, we're mostly working with our own uh, kinds of toolkits. So then it becomes when you have to move stuff to different different, like the 16 different machines we have here, then things become a little bit more complicated. Okay. And if I want to get an overview of what are the challenges, the technologies, the existing research, is there any kind of survey or document or anything around that people can use that you can mention and maybe we can put Uh, on the website? mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to send you the link to one... With uh, Tobias, my my husband, I recently did a literature review of six or seven different conferences and looked at all the papers that were about surfaces and visualizations in a relatively broad sense. Nice. Wow. We looked at looked at what data uh, people used in the project, what kind of visual representations they used, what types of displays, mm-hmm. what types of input they supported, um, and what sort of what the research focus was. Um, and how many, I mean, if they supported single users or groups. So the paper isn't, isn't quite out yet, but the Google Doc that contains all the research papers, I, I can give you the link to. Uh-huh. Um, then there's an interest, there are lots of blogs on, on surface technology. Oh. And if you, uh, I can, there's also a Google, Google list where Johannes Schöning, who's now at Hazard University, uh, it's called Hasselt University, um, sends out a news, newsletter every week with the newest and coolest surface technology. Uh-huh. So this is something to subscribe to. I recommend it. I read that every week. And uh, so what else? Did, you asked me three things. No, I forgot the last one. <laughs> I forgot it too. Hey, I research, research and technology. and Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out a person who wants to start with this stuff and what kind of mm-hmm. documents are around material that people can use to just get acquainted with the, with the old topic. Just that. Yeah, yeah. that. yeah, and of course, there's some specialized books. For example, there's one on, on tabletops where, that you can read if you want to learn for example about what what would be the best resolution i should pick for my display which is which is something 
quite tricky because a lot of the tabletop displays and also if you think about TVs, their pixel per inch ratio is actually not very good for reading text. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And reading text is something very important if you have a visualization application. Mm -hmm. So if you would like to find out you know, how many pixels per inch do I need? Do I need to go up to 300 or can I go with 100 or even less? Mm -hmm. um, then that would be a good place to look. That's great too, because that's uh, it's true. It's really hard to figure out, and you know, full HD sounds like a lot, but once you blow it up to a few meters, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your text will look really bad too. So yeah, yeah. So that's that's really a big gotcha in many cases. Yeah. Yeah, even the 4K. If you think mm -hmm. about a 4K display at at 64 inches, it actually only has 72 72 pixels per inch, which is yeah. Less yeah. than your you, normal screen these days, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. You can read 10 point text at a regular viewing distance, like a desktop viewing distance, still fine, but anything smaller than 10 points already, not that great. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. yeah, but that's great. If you have some material there, we will definitely put it into the posts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that's great. that would be really useful. Yeah, I'll send you that. Okay. Um, I don't know, Moritz, you want to ask something else or? I think no. We, I, I, I think, think we, we covered wrap quite. A, yeah, yeah, I think we covered pretty much everything. Pedro, is there anything else you want to mention from your work? You have so many interesting projects on your website. I I got lost basically looking at. <laughs> 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 no, seriously. I mean, you guys, you sh definitely check her website. There are so many interesting projects and papers all over the place, and. Uh, I definitely want to mention that Pedro is one of my favorite researchers around. And uh, <laughs> I mean, at some point I, I, I decided that instead of competing with her, I should have collaborate with her. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's, it's somewhat true. And yeah, so we are doing some stuff together, but it's more on the perceptual side. And not not related to walls or surfaces. Well, Who knows? We're maybe a in the future. Together, right? Sorry, we've been running a workshop together. Yeah, that that that's fun. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess maybe the only thing that um, I guess you didn't dare to ask me <laughs> was about the, the kind of recommending a certain technology. Oh yeah, I I can I cannot tell you exactly what I would buy at this moment because it really depends, but. What I can tell you is a little bit just the characteristics that I would be looking for uh -huh. that may be potentially important for for other people to think about. Uh -huh. So from my past projects, something that I would really be looking for is that the display is large enough, if you want to support collaboration, that people can stand around such that they don't easily bump into each other, that they can actually have their personal space mm -hmm. in front of mm -hmm. the display. If possible, I would like... Uh, display to be seamless. So a lot of, especially display walls, are put together from several, for example, LCD screens. So the le least amount of bezels you can have, the better, better in my opinion. Because especially for visualization applications, it kind of chunks the space uh, artificially or physically. And this may sometimes conflict with whatever data you may want to show. Yeah, we have this kind of display here, and it's I don't like it at all. Mm. When you have these very large bezels, it just doesn't mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and as I said before, you want as high resolution as you can get, uh, in particular because for most visualizations, you actually need to read labels. So you need to be able to read 
text and and small data items potentially. But you also want high resolution for the input, so you want to be able to interact relatively accurately with your data. If possible, I would like multi-touch. So I think the time of single-touch displays is almost over, but there may still be some around. So the more touches you can have, the better. What would be really nice and is hardly ever supported currently is identity tracking. So in particular, if you want to be able to show people, for example, what they've already looked at um, in collaboration and you cannot tell who has interacted where, this may become quite oh, difficult. Wow. So that's, if you have that's that's a very important point that we didn't even mention, mm. right? Yeah. Mm. I mean tracking yeah, people around being able so, yeah. yeah, from the application standpoint, mm. being able to say who did what, it's it's a big mm. yeah. And whose stuff is what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's true. Uh, and even sometimes if if the fingers but if you think about touch, if the fingers from two people are touching an object or if it's the same person can help you resolve conflicts. Um, so oh, yeah, yeah it's true tracking. like the, the hands they might merge if they are too close to each other oh, no, oh my god yeah. wow yeah. <laughs> horrible <laughs> yeah so identity tracking something if you can have it great mm-hmm. um, marker detection is something also very interesting if you want to combine a display with tangibles for example if you want to provide some knobs that people can rotate instead of using a virtual interface or if you want to provide physical data representations on a surface, then being able to track those would be nice. And my dream interface would also have haptic feedback, but this is still a little far in the future. Wow, okay. <laughs> Directly from the display, you mean, or what? Yeah, there, there were, was actually a really nice demo at Kai maybe one or two years ago where it was very small, maybe the size of a phone, but uh, on the display you could you could touch and by doing some magic, you could actually feel the button. <laughs> and it was a flat surface otherwise, so it mm-hmm. was really, really nice. Wow. wow. I, I heard Apple is also rumored to be working on something like touch feedback on, on their, for the iPhone and mm-hmm. so on. So, yeah. Cool. Okay. Crazy stuff. Crazy. <laughs> it's too futuristic for us. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> Okay, I think we should stop here, right? Yeah, great. Great. Very informative. Very. Lots of lots of great material in the document already. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's good stuff. So yeah. folks, yeah. let's I, I love, yeah. Let's just create love talking about this. I'll send you a couple more links for the website. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. Good. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Petra. Good. Thank you guys. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye bye.